You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer, and I want to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Joshua Richter, who's an assistant professor in the myeloma division at the Tisch Cancer Institute at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's also the director of myeloma care at the Blavatnik Family Chelsea Medical Center at Mount Sinai. So Josh, I have to say that was a mouthful. That was a lot of stuff. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks for being with us. Today, you really want to talk about the physician's role in treating uh, newly diagnosed patients with myeloma. Just to mention to you and to also our listeners, we're going to have a similar conversation very soon, talking about the nurse's role and the team's role in caring for those patients as well. So I wanted to get your sense on, again, caring for newly diagnosed patients. One of the things that I've wondered about as a community hematologist and oncologist is when to start treatment. And so I'll say a little bit more about it. There are patients who are have smoldering myeloma, and it really is a decision on what to do and when. So how do you think through that situation? So this is actually a really hot topic in myeloma. And a lot of this really has to do with our definitions of what is truly a smoldering patient who is okay to watch and observe without directed therapy and who really needs therapy. And for years, we kind of separated out things very succinctly between smoldering myeloma, which was defined at 10% or more bad plasma cells or myeloma cells in the marrow, or greater than an M spike in the blood of three grams per deciliter, but no crab symptoms, no classic crab they talk about, high calcium, renal problems, anemia, or bone lesions. And then myeloma patients, people who needed therapy were patients who had crab symptoms. But one of the biggest papers or biggest shifts in recent years was a major paper published led by the group at the Mayo Clinic and Dr. S. Vincent Rajkumar in November 2014, Lancet Hematology. And what they looked at was thousands and thousands of patients who had smoldering myeloma, and they tried to pick out independent risk factors for reasons that would make them progress, because we classically would say smoldering myeloma has a 10% chance per year of progression. But we know that it's heterogeneous in that group. There's some people who are like 2% and some people like 80%. And they found three things that if a smoldering patient had any of these three, they were about 80 to 90% likely to progress within the next two years that now we actually consider treating those patients earlier on. And we call those the slim criteria. So CRAB has now evolved. It's lost some weight and CRAB is now the slim CRAB. S stands for 60. So if you have 60% or more plasma cells in your marrow, even if you don't have any CRAB symptoms, we consider treating you. LI stands for light chain ratio. So we measure the kappa and lambda levels in the blood. And if your ratio of kappa to lambda or lambda to kappa is greater than 100 to 1, you're such a high risk of progression, we consider treating you. 
and M stands for MRI. In the old days, the B for bone lesions comes from old classic x-rays, but we know that patients can have lesions on MRI or PET-CT years before it shows up on plain film. So the definition is now if you have more than one lesion of at least five millimeters on an MRI, we consider treating you. And is that whole body MRI? I actually would love to hear more about what does MRI mean in that setting? And, and that's actually one of the most important questions about this is, what does that really mean? So the IMWG has kind of endorsed three modalities of imaging that we call MRI, but we really mean higher order imaging or something better than an x-ray. So the old-fashioned skeletal survey or metastatic bone survey is no longer considered a standard of care. One, it doesn't get the high-resolution look at the bones, and two, it shows you nothing about soft tissues, and some patients can have soft tissue plasmacytomas. So the three recommended higher-order modality imaging tests are either low-dose whole-body CT, PET-CT, or whole-body MRI. And for whole-body, we usually like to use at our institution something we call a DWIB, a diffusion-weighted MR. And this diffusion-weighted allows us to almost get that feel of a PET scan. What lesions are not only there, but are they active or are they not active? Very interesting. So, by the way, if insurance authorizations were not an issue, do you have one that you would choose or one that you'd recommend of those three? Absolutely. Another, you know, you're asking all the important clinical relevant questions. In general, PET-CT is probably my favorite because it gives a lot of great information. It gives that activity, not activity. But there are a few advantages of the MRI that I do like. One of them is that it's not radiation. So if you're doing a lot of them, especially for young patients, you anticipate living a very long time, you avoid radiation. And two, the other benefit of the MRI is that so many of our patients have back problems for non-myeloma reasons. And it really helps delineate when someone says, you know, my back hurts, what's a disc out of place, what's a little arthritis, and what's really myeloma? Well, actually, very good point. Just to mention on, as an aside, but it's interesting with PET scans, but sometimes we actually do find other things, you know, patients with myeloma who also have occult uh, prostate cancer or colon cancer for that matter. But thank you. That's a very good point about the MRIs and, and just other musculoskeletal symptoms that people have. So if you take a population of patients, judging from that paper and also from your experience, you take patients who are in this smoldering group. And if you do look at SLIM, again, clinically, there's a group, they're all sort of, we'll call them homogeneous. But how often when you look at those three criteria, do you find something that triggers the need to treat them sooner rather than later? So it's interesting. We do find it on a fair amount of time. The issue is, even if you find that, should you treat? And that's something that's kind of highly debatable right now. And a lot of this comes from, you know, kind of that's the 10,000 foot view of the slim. But if you kind of dig down deep, there are some hidden nuggets that there's a little bit of a few cracks in there. And maybe we shouldn't treat some of these patients. So that S for 60, that 60 was determined on aspirates and flow cytometry. And very traditionally, flow underestimates the amount of plasma cells. So next time you, anyone sees a myeloma patient and you check in the chart, you look at their core biopsy that says 80% and the flow says 8% because it underestimates it. So if you have 60% on a flow, that means your core is bounding 100%, 120%. So it doesn't mean if you get 60% on a core, they need treatment. That light chain ratio of 100, 
to one, that was only found in about a dozen patients in that series. So out of thousands of patients, it's a small number. And I've had patients that I've followed for years prior to that with light chain ratios of well over 100. And the paper came out, their biology didn't change. I didn't treat them. They're doing fine. I even have a few patients with a light chain ratio of greater than 1,000 that I'm not treating it. It's just a tendency. And and that MR business was really, they looked at patients who had negative x-rays over time, and they grouped them into having no lesions, one lesion, more than one lesion. And the people with more than one lesion tended to progress sooner. So I don't leap at it, but it's really nice to have the ability to treat because we used to have patients that had tons of disease, didn't fit any crab, but we knew they needed treatment. This opens up the door for us to, it's that art of medicine. This allows us more the ability to say, you know what, looking at the 10,000 foot view, you need it, but you don't. So, you know, thinking about your clinic experience in the last few months, I'd love to hear some examples of patients that you either decided to treat or to not treat. What went into your decision making? Where again, they may sort of fit the criteria, the slim criteria, but in terms of the art of medicine, what are the things that sort of sway you to make your decisions? Absolutely. And, you know, I can think off the top of my head, a patient that I just started on therapy within the last two weeks that didn't fit the CRAB criteria, fit slim criteria, and we had an ongoing discussion. And this is a lovely woman who actually has another malignancy. She's been followed by a hematologist for polycythemia vera and had been on you know, therapy for that for a long time. And her creatinine started to rise and her creatinine got up to 1.7. And if you look back to the original CRAB paper from the 1970s, you only treat when the creatinine gets greater than two. We scanned her. She has no lesions. Her hemoglobin is stable. She, there's nothing from the classic description of treat myeloma that says we need to treat her. But her light chain ratio was several hundred. And I told her, I said, listen, you know, we have a few ways of approaching this. One of them states, let's just wait around until your creatinine gets to two and then treat you. We can start biopsying your kidney and biopsying that and doing all these different things. But ultimately, I said, this looks like this is what's causing your renal insufficiency. And I don't want to wait around until the kidneys are getting over two or over three before we do something. The biology and what's demonstrated and what's coming out in the urine is saying, you have high burden disease that's affecting your kidneys. And we started therapy on her. And within a few weeks, her creatinine is almost normalized. Now, she would not have fit classic criteria. But this kind of is the example, at least in my mind, of you know that patient that 10, 20 years ago, we said, ah, you know, I want to treat you, but you're not quite there. Thank you. I think that's a great example. You know what? I'm going to change the topic a little bit. There are patients, but I think it's the perfect segue. Patients with uh, monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance. Tell us a little bit about that entity. And again, how do you treat them? Yeah, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. I actually gave a grand rounds on it not too long ago. So for those listeners who don't know, you know, we've talked about MGUS and people know the name MGUS, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. But they started realizing over time that although myeloma kidney, the actual way myeloma hurts kidneys, cast nephropathy, is only one of dozens and dozens of ways in which the monoclonal protein can affect the kidneys. And there's now a group of diseases that it's not myeloma, but the protein itself is negatively impacting the kidney. And these are called monoclonal gammopathies of renal significance. 
And in there are things like amyloidosis, which everyone knows about. But there are some rarer diseases in there, light chain deposition disease, acquired Fanconi's, MIDD, MPGIN, these membranoproliferative glomerulonephritides and immune globulin deposition diseases. There's heavy chain deposition, something called Franklin's disease. So ultimately, this is one of those old adages where tissue is the issue. You need to biopsy the kidney to know what's going on. And, you know, the point that you bring up, who needs treatment, who doesn't, this is where we lean heavily on our renal pathologist. I have a number of patients, in fact, someone I saw recently who is on dialysis who has light chain deposition disease in the kidney on biopsy. However, there is no other evidence of light chain deposition disease in any other organ, any other manifestations of myeloma. And when we look at the renal biopsy, it's filled with arteriosclerosis, arteriolosclerosis and fibrosis. So the conversation I had with him is he's on dialysis. There is no chance of renal recovery given the other damage. So we know the process is there, but we're not actively treating. So this is really one of those issues where you need to biopsy these people. And the kind of key is lots of nonspecific proteinuria. So if you have more than a gram of albuminuria in the urine, and you can't attribute it easily to diabetes or hypertension, then you start worrying about these things like MGRS and you need a biopsy. And remembering that amyloid is more common with lambda light chain gammopathy and things like deposition diseases like light chain deposition is more common with kappa-restricted. Question that comes to mind for me for this particular patient, how much M-spike are you seeing? Are you seeing any? Or is it just on immunofixation, for example? In the urine you're talking about? Urine or if the person is still making urine or in the serum for that matter. So it's very, very interesting because very classically in the serum, these are low secretors. So the common or the most common presentation of the MGRS is someone has a monoclonal gammopathy that you, at first glance, you say, well, this isn't myeloma, this is nothing. In fact, as a corollary, MGUS is really a diagnosis of exclusion. You need to be sure there's nothing else going on. But it's really for the people who typically have a very low level protein in the blood, very low M spike, even trace positive sometimes. And in the urine, we look at the total protein in 24 hours that's usually in the grams, sometimes in the nephrotic range over three grams, but usually very little in the way of monoclonal protein, bench Jones. So if someone has three grams of protein in the urine, you know, it's something that like two and a half grams are albumin and only a few hundred are, are the bench Jones. These are the people that I really worry about having an MGRS. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about neuropathy, the patients with the IgG kappa. Again, what's your approach in that situation? How do you confirm that these are related because so many people have neuropathy and what do you do about it? Again, another very complex referral where you know the neurologist sees a patient, does an immunofixation, finds a spike and says, is this related or not? And in my mind, the first step is Usually the neurologist will run EMGs, nerve conduction velocities, and is this neuropathy demyelinating or axonal in nature? In general, we see a lot more demyelinating processes, things like myelin-associated glycoprotein-related neuropathies, and there's a number of autoantibodies that we can actually see in the blood, GM1, GDQ1, ganglioside, MAG, that we actively look for if we find a demyelinating process. For axonal processes, we look for a few other things. You know, one of them is amyloid. 
So really worthwhile looking for amyloidosis signs. So high protein in the urine or elevated NT pro BNP or troponin in the blood for cardiac amyloid. The other for neuropathy that's often forgotten is to look for POMS syndrome. So POMS is that acronym, polyneuropathy, organomegaly, endocrinopathy, monoclonal gammopathy, sclerodactyly. And it used to be an extremely difficult diagnosis. We now know that greater than 95% of all patients with POMS will have an elevated plasma VEGF level, vascular endothelial growth factor. So as part of my workup, when I see one of these patients is, you know, do you have autoantibodies like MAG or GM1, but I also send a VEGF to make sure they don't have POMS. I have to say it's interesting because with all the great science, this field in particular has gotten more complex. So anyways, I want to thank you and the subspecialists that I use uh, locally to help sort these out. Let's talk a little bit about frontline treatment. And again, sort of the decision-making process, patients where you need to treat them, beside just the word myeloma, what are the factors that go into your decision-making about what drugs to use, how intensive to treat them? And then I actually would like to move on a little bit too to talk about who should you sort of plan ahead for a transplant trajectory? All great questions. So, you know, your second question actually leads right into the first. So the kind of first question we ask ourselves in 2021 is, are you transplant eligible or transplant ineligible? And the main thing, there are really two general rules that you want to follow if you're considering transplant. One of them is no melphalan and no oral alcoran as part of your induction treatment if you're going to collect stem cells. And knowing that Revlimid can affect our ability to collect stem cells, we try to avoid more than four to six cycles of Revlimid as induction prior to collecting. Other than that, you can theoretically do whatever you want, but there's some general themes. So let's start off with the transplant ineligible. The transplant ineligible, so the older and frailer patients, traditionally have gotten things like doublets, so Velcadex or Revdex. And then what I think a lot of people have done over the last 10 years is given VRD light, Velcade, Revlimid, and Dexamethasone, but once a week Velcade instead of twice a week, or 10 or 15 of Revlimid instead of 25, and dose reduce the dex. And that's been the standard. Interesting, though, is that VRD as a standard like this has only been studied as a phase three study very recently and published by Brian Dury only about a year ago from the SWOG 0777 trial. And it validated VRD light as a kind of really great upfront regimen or VRD is an upfront regimen, median progression-free survival of over 40 months. What has absolutely changed the field was only presented at our meetings a few months ago in June of 2021, the Maya study looking at daratumumab, revlimid, and dexamethasone up front in transplant ineligible. The median progression-free survival has not yet been reached in the study. However, it just crossed the 60-month mark, meaning the median progression-free survival for dararevdex for transplant ineligible is greater than five years. Wow. For those of us like you and I who've been doing this for a long time, you know, they used to talk about the entire journey of myeloma from diagnosis to death as being two years. That's right. Now, DRD for the older and frailer is going to get you more than five just in terms of progression-free survival. So that has really emerged as the new standard. Wow. Basically, the plan is you continue that until intolerance or progression. The transplant eligible is a very dicey subject at the moment. So VRD is still the standard. 
the big questions that everyone has are, should we add Dara? So should we give Dara VRD a quadruplet? Or should we give KRD? The data from the Griffin study looking at Dara VRD gives you deeper remissions. And what do I mean by deeper? More than 50% of patients who receive Dara VRD, more than 50% achieved MRD negativity, minimal residual disease negativity. No detectable disease by our greatest technology in 2021. So the quads are really emerging as a standard. The one little drawback is that they haven't seemed to have a big impact on high-risk disease, so people with 17P deletion or 1Q gains. I, in my practice, I use KRD, Kyprolis Revdex, for those high-risk transplant-eligible patients based on some phase two data. Seems to be a little bit better for the high-risk, but you know we still don't know. And then ultimately, who do I prepare a transplant for? Almost anyone. The reality is that we have the ability to collect cells and store them for later. And you never know what's going to happen. If you have a 70-year-old that you don't want to necessarily transplant up front and you give them Dararevdex, but a year into it, they progress, I would love to have had cells so that I could salvage them with a transplant. Because if the new stuff doesn't work, sometimes you go to the old stuff. So in my practice, I collect almost everybody and I collect cells for the things we know and the things we don't know. We're having such change in the field. Would it surprise anyone if 10 years from now they said, you know, we have a cure if only you had a bag of cells laying around? So I collect in almost everyone. Yeah, yeah. So, and actually for the listeners, I'd just love to have it out there. When you collect cells, what's that all about? I mean, honestly, how do you do it? Because it turns out it's, it's not that difficult, is it? No. So another great question. So the standard approach, and there really is no standard in myeloma, but for most patients, we just give growth factors alone. So we hold their treatment usually for about three weeks to let all the after effects wash out of their system. We give them high dose filgrastum. So we don't just give them, you know, 300 or 480. We give them 10 mics per kg, sometimes even going higher. If we need, we give them a little extra drug called plerixifor or mozabil to help kind of release the stem cells from the marrow into the blood. And then we hook them up to an apheresis machine. And usually, you know, we hook them up for about four hours. Uh, So it's like they're donating blood or getting dialysis. Some patients only take one session to collect. Some may take two or three, but it's generally well tolerated. Sometimes we do what's called chemo mobilization. So a week before we start them on these injections at home, we give them a high dose of cyclophosphamide. And that helps to kind of collect more cells. There are times we're in real big trouble and we want cells and their myelomas progressing. So we give them something old school like VD Pace and then collect the cells after. So the general way, exactly like you said, it's, you know, you give yourself injections of Neupogen at home and then you go to a pharesis center that we have and we collect them. So for most people, it's not that big a deal. So let me ask you, with these really incredible response rates, I want to reflect back on what you said, which is it has been fascinating looking at this evolution from, you know, melphalan and prednisone with people living two years now to this disease that where patients are going into really good remissions. We'll play devil's advocate here to people need transplants, someone who goes into a really amazing remission, a deep remission to, you know, your eligible patients. Do they need a transplant? Uh, Man, you are asking all of the hot button questions. Deliberately. (laughs) Deliberately. So uh, I will give you both sides of the coin. Uh, I will sit on the fence here. So in the old days, when the standard of care used to be something called VAD, 
And I'm not going to, you know, if you've given VAD, don't tell the listeners, it'll give away your age. But for those of you listening who still gave VAD or never heard of VAD, it was infusional vincristine adriamycin index, horrible stuff, didn't work too well, but they did a study showing that transplant was better than that standard. But more recently, we said, well, VRD is the standard. What's better, VRD or VRD in a transplant? They did this big study called the IFM-DFCI 2009 collaboration between the French group and the Dana-Farber group. And in general, if you got VRD and a transplant, you had deeper emissions and trend towards better progression and free survival. However, they did MRD analysis at the end of induction. And if you are MRD negative at the end of induction therapy, it did not make a difference if you had a transplant or not. So we're trying to start thinking, well, exactly as you said, if you get such a deep response up front, MRD negative, do you still need transplant? And the caveat to that comes from some of the data from the Forte trial, a trial that was presented again recently by Francesca Gay, and this was looking at carfilzomib revlimid, DEX, KRD, versus KSID, carfilzomib cytoxin, DEX up front. And this was a three-arm study. KRD followed by transplant, KSID followed by transplant, or KRD for 12 cycles, no transplant. And the KRD arms did better, but the high-risk group did better with the transplant than without. So in the back of my mind, I think high-risk patients definitely get a transplant. But if you're a standard risk and you get MRD negative up front, the current thinking is you probably don't need it. Maybe save that high-dose treatment for another time. So I think you're onto something there. Yeah. And it's so interesting and how wonderful that in myeloma now, there's so many topics to think about and to talk about. I want to talk about sort of quality of life issues, considerations for patients with myeloma, many of whom um, are older and have other comorbidities. But in broad terms, what is the journey like for patients with myeloma in terms of their quality of life, both keeping in mind the disease itself and the treatment-related toxicities? So in a disease that we now expect many of our patients to live well over a decade, we need to absolutely put quality of life first and foremost. And one of the things that we know is that the average patient in the United States doesn't get more than three to four lines of therapy. And that's for both good reasons and bad reasons. The good ones being if you get diagnosed at 85 and you're in complete remission and you die of something else at 90, that you only got one line. And some people who get, you know, are much sicker, more aggressive disease, will progress sooner and only get three or four lines. But we know that as you go from line one to two to three to four, there's a higher incidence of comorbidities, toxicity, and there's actually data now that's collected showing decreases in health-related quality of life from disease, from treatment, and from you know psychological concerns, financial concerns. These things plague a lot of patients. Myeloma is a rather expensive disease. The average triplet up front is $350,000 to $500,000 a year. A quad is six fifty. Now, the patients don't pay all of that, but depending upon what their coverage is, it can be a lot of it and it can have a lot of implications. So keeping in mind that early on is the time to make bigger interventions. So give triplets early on to get such a deep response that if people need time off or something happens comorbid-wise, they can take that time off. You know, if you're having a heart attack, but you're in complete remission, we hold therapy until you're fully recovered. But there's nothing worse than having aggressive relapsing myeloma 
and needing a surgery. That becomes more complicated. Really focusing on prophylactic medications, so giving prophylactic antibiotics or antivirals, giving bone-modifying agents to prevent uh, bone fractures and skeletal-related events which can affect long-term outcomes, being mindful of neuropathy, encouraging patients to be honest with their side effects so that we can help deal with them. I always tell patients, you don't get bonus points for being in pain. So really being open and honest with your care team is crucial. And for the caregivers and clinicians listening, making sure that, yeah, you're in remission, but are we remembering to give our Zomata or Exgeva? Are they on their aspirin prophylaxis for Revlimid? Are they on their acyclovir prophylaxis for Dara? Because these things we forget because we forget about the big topic, which is the myeloma, but there's seven or eight little things around it that can have big problems down the road. Josh, I want to ask you about the, obviously a very important topic. What's the patient's role in making decisions and joint decision-making? So there's always this big pendulum in medicine that swings back and forth between paternalism and autonomy. And, you know, I think a lot of us, you know, at least when I grew up, it was all in the paternalistic uh, viewpoint, which is the doctor comes in in the white coat and this is what's happening and okay, I'll listen to whatever. And then with modern day age information technology, things started swinging back towards autonomy. And now patients come in saying, well, I want this medicine right away. And of course, like everything else, Goldilocks is the answer to everything is, you know, it's a joint decision making, especially in the upfront setting. Yeah. Talking with a patient, what are your goals? What are our goals? You know, there are some patients who are much older who say, you know what, I don't want to have three or four drugs. It's too much for me. I want an oral regimen and I want to be around to see my granddaughter graduate college in a few years. You know, that's a legitimate goal, in which case you don't have to give four drugs, five drugs, transplant, you can put someone on an oral regimen. And yes, you know, one of my professors used to say, never let perfection be the enemy of the good. Yeah, yeah. And it's really important. If you have a young patient who says, you know, I want to do everything to get a cure and I don't care what you do to me, I just want to get there, then you take that approach. So really sitting down with the patient in the data-free zones when we have a couple of options saying, listen, at this point, I could give you this or this. These are the side effects of this. These are the side effects. And sometimes the patients say, I'll leave it in your court. But sometimes they say, you know what? VRD, that causes neuropathy. I have a patient who is a professional piano player. And we just sat down with her a few years ago and said, we're going to give you Velcade Revdex or Dara Revdex. And back then we didn't know. And we still don't have head to head. But she says, I don't want any risk of neuropathy. I make my living playing piano. Here's one of my CDs. So we gave her Dara. Very important to have the patient's point of view for initial therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And that's a, a wonderful story. One of my patients is an ophthalmologist and basically said, if I can't have perfect sensation in my feet and hands because they use a foot pedal, then I won't be able to work. So thank you for sharing that. How's COVID affected your practice? Hugely, as everywhere else. One of the biggest things has been the advent of telemedicine. You know, we had some telemedicine before, but now full-blown. And I think one of the importances of telemedicine is, you know, I live in New York City. You could take a heavy rock and hit a myeloma center if you throw it hard enough in New York, but not everyone lives in a city like that. So if you live in a place where you don't have easy access to a myeloma center, you can visit any one of our centers, not just mine, but any of the other myeloma physicians more than happy to visit by telemedicine to help guide care. 
During the height of COVID, we held off on a lot of transplants. Those are now back full-born. One of the biggest issues now is vaccination and booster vaccination in line with therapy. In myeloma, you know, do we have to hold therapy? Hard to say. The two biggest therapies that seem to impact the generation of antibodies are CD38 antibody drugs like daratumumab and esetuximab and anti-BCMA therapies like CAR T-cells or belantamab. So in general, we try to hold therapy if we can. If you had a transplant, we usually wait 90 days after the transplant to give you a COVID vaccine. But for the most part, we still tell patients, you know, the good supportive care stuff, good hand washing, social distancing, masking in public places, especially with Delta variant, Lambda variant, and Mu variant on the horizon. There's some data suggesting that higher levels of antibodies may be good for Delta. So we have patients getting earlier boosters than waiting eight months. We may have them do it a little bit sooner. But also these levels that everyone checks and posts on Facebook, there's more to immunity than just the B cells. There's We now show that T cells have been affecting COVID. The other thing is IVIG is now starting to have significant levels of anti-SARS antibodies. So IVIG may be a good thing for some patients. And for anyone with any exposure to COVID or who develops COVID within the early symptomology, we get them immediately to get monoclonal antibody therapy like the Regeneron therapy because that can really help their outcomes. Well, interesting. Thank you. And And the last thing I want to ask you, I think in many ways, one of the most interesting things as a myeloma expert, what are the things you're most excited about in terms of what's on the horizon? So I always like to be a little bit different than the whole pack, but I think the pack is starting to agree with me a little bit. So for years, everyone has been very excited about CAR T therapy, chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapy, where we collect your T cells, engineer them to attack the myeloma, reinfuse them into you. And this is a great technology. We had the approval of a BECMA CAR T March 26th of this year. Siltacel, the J&J CAR T will likely be approved November 2021. But to me, the next greatest thing are bispecific antibodies. And I am head over heels ecstatic about bispecific antibodies for a lot of reasons. Bispecific antibodies are antibody drugs with two arms. One arm has uh, targets something that's on the cancer cell, and the other arm targets CD3, which is on all T cells. And basically, we infuse these drugs, and they grab on and activate T cells and activate your own immune system to attack the cancer. In our institution, for example, we have four different bispecific constructs. So we have CD3, CD38 bispecifics, CD3, BCMA bispecifics, CD3, FCRH5, and CD3, GPRC5D. And all four of those targets, BCMA, CD38, and so on, they're on the plasma cells. Now, the benefit of these drugs is that they're off the shelf. You know, for a CAR-T, you have to collect the cells and engineer them. That can take a month or more. These drugs are ready to go, so it's off the shelf. The other thing is that in the United States, 70 to 80% of myeloma is treated in the community, not at academic centers. The community doesn't always have access to CAR-Ts. But the wonders of bispecific antibodies is that they can be given in community centers to older patients. And it's titratable. If I give you a first dose and it's a little too much, I can give you steroids. And even if I give you so much steroid to shut down your immune response, I can give you another dose next week and try. Uh, So there are a lot of these drugs in clinical trial that are showing extremely high response rates in heavily refractory patients. The hope, fingers crossed, is that in 2022, we'll probably have a couple of approvals if things go as planned. There's a couple of league-leading drugs out there. So Johnson & Johnson has 
teclistamab and talketamab. Teclistamab is a BCMase bispecific. Talketamab is a GPRC 5D bispecific. Regeneron and Pfizer have BCMA bispecifics, and so does Amgen. All of them are getting closer and closer to approval. The GPRC5D is the talketamab. FCRH5 is a Genentech bispecific that's coming up along. And Eknos has a drug that's a CD38. So the next couple of years are going to be an explosion of immunotherapy, but it's going to be off the shelf and available to anyone. So to me, that's what I couldn't be more excited about. You know, and absolutely, I don't blame you. I think it's incredible. The other thing, I am so impressed that you can remember all the names. I think that is going to be the problem for a community oncologist. We're so lucky to have, for a rare disease, 1.8% of all cancer is myeloma, 10% of all hemolignancy. There's such a wonderful advocacy group and a, such a community of pharma and academia and community and patients and caregivers that we have such an amazing plethora of drugs, not only available now, but in the pipeline. So bright, bright future. That's wonderful. So with all that said, and I have to say, this has been a wonderful session. I want to take the opportunity to thank you, but also to thank everyone for listening to this informative session. This has been a talk today with Dr. Joshua Richter, who's an assistant professor at the Tisch Cancer Institute at Mount Sinai Hospital. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed this and hope to come back another time when we have the cure and we can talk about that. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wonderful. For our listeners, for a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources. I want to encourage you also to sign up to receive notifications of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. And we look forward to you joining us for future episodes. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.